morning we're going to find ourselves back in the the gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. As as you're turning there, I also just want to remind you, we have the the prayer cards that you'll find in your worship guides as well. Um, If you have a prayer prayer request, uh, you can fill that out and put it in the the box that you'll find in the the entryway, and we will look at that. We'll be praying for you uh, throughout the week. Also, too, if you're interested in, in receiving more information uh, about us as, as a church. Uh, if you want to be on our email list uh, or anything else like that, you can also fill, fill out that, uh, that card as well. And again, put it in the same place, and we'll make sure that, uh, that you get the, the proper information that you are requesting. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Let me pray first as we, uh, we come to God's word. Lord God, we we need to hear what you have to say to us because you are the one who is over all things. You you are our creator. You are the redeemer of the world. What you say, it goes. And your gracious words are what we also need to hear. Sometimes they're difficult words, words that we have a hard time grappling with. And so we pray that your spirit would be upon us and, and moving with your word this morning to break down our barriers and walls we might erect, uh, putting uh, aside the distractions or anything else that we might have that would prevent us from not only focusing our minds on you, but our hearts. Soften our hearts. Spirit, please kill our hearts so that they would be ready to receive this word and then, and then uh, water them. Water them with your, with your grace so that they might flourish, uh, not only in our hearts, but in our lives. Let us see Jesus more clearly. Let us see him as being more beautiful, more believable than he did when he first came into this world. Father, we pray for the man who's preaching here, too, that your spirit would be upon him also. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. This is God's word. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Amen. 
we talk about discipleship in the church and what is discipleship? What does it mean to be a disciple? We just simply put it means to follow someone. That's what, that's what it means to be a disciple, to follow someone. You follow after that person in the way of life. Uh, you follow after them in what that life that they're offering uh, offers. Uh, it follows that person. It follows that ideal because that vision, that way of life which they are talking about, which they are, are living themselves, is compelling. And it promises something. It, it holds out a vision of life. And it holds out this idea of, or a promise of flourishing in life. I mean, you can think about people having, having visions of an agricultural living and what it means to live on a small plot of land and, and a small farm and to live off, off the, the earth. And there's that sort of flourishing ideal and it propels them in their vision for life. Uh, there are religious teachings that people have that, that that's what forms the basis for how I live and it's going to form the idea of flourishing in my life. Uh, people follow poets and other dreamers who have the same sort of ideal. And so to, varying, to, to various degrees, following a person or following a principle uh, laid down from a person is to then follow them in that sort of vision of life that they have uh, in the hope of finding a flourishing life. And that's a factor that's at, at play here in Peter's confession. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give various, uh, various uh, names and, and examples of who they think, of who people think that Jesus is. But none of them really get actually at, at the point until Peter says, well, who do, you know, when, when Jesus says, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah, the one that we've hoped for, the one that we have pinned our hopes and dreams upon for generations and generations. You're the one who's, pen, who's come, sent from God, anointed by the Spirit to come and to deliver us, to bring glory and restoration to us where it's all been lost. You're the Christ. And when Peter says that, there's all the expectations, all the hopes and dreams of not only himself, but of all the Jewish people are all there uh, tied together with his confession are all tied up when, with Jesus when he says, you're the Christ. And there's this exhilaration you can feel in Peter's confession then. Peter is experiencing this here, this sort of exhilaration because he's a disciple. He's a follower of Jesus. And who are they following? They're following not just Jesus, they're following the Christ. They're following this, this, this uh, the one sent from God, the one who's got this vision of flourishing, the one who's bringing life, a triumphant Christ, they're thinking. Ah, this one who's going to restore glory and hope for us. This is who we're following, the, the long-awaited one. We're as close as his disciples. And so what does this also mean for them, do you think, in their minds? We're also going to be following along in this band, or in this, this grand vision of glory and life. That they're going to be sharing in the hope and glory. They're going to be taking part in the majesty and flourishing. The life of Jesus Christ, they're imagining, will be the, also the life that they walk along and the life that they enjoy. And with all of that, you can imagine then the, the confusion that, they, that sets in when Jesus, it says in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. It's necessary 
for the Christ as they're following him to be rejected and killed and suffer and rise again. That's the way of the Christ. That's what Jesus begins to tell them. And it's a way that they weren't quite expected. They were thinking about, this is Christ? What? I thought a Christ was going to be this glorious and triumphant one. But you're telling us, Jesus, that, that you are a Christ who suffers and dies. And if we're your closest disciples, then that means that we too are going to suffer and be rejected and, and die? Is that what they signed up for when Jesus first called them? And so suddenly things are different. The tone of the conversation changes. And Peter pulls Jesus aside. He says, you've got to rethink this cross business. He rebukes him. Perhaps because he understands the implications for himself also. That a suffering and crucified Christ means suffering and crucified disciples. And then Jesus looks at him and he rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan. Satan just means adversary. You are aligning yourself with Satan. You're aligning yourself with the adversary. You're getting in the way of what I've intended to do. See, the way of the Christ is one who is, who is coming to deliver, but in this way. Here, the cross and the suffering is the central to the mission and the glory, uh, the, 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 or the mission to restore life and glory and to redeem the world, to redeem people from all of the sin and the miseries which plague us. And so to pull Jesus away from that is to pull him away from his father-sent mission. And that's when he calls the, together then his disciples and all the other crowds he's following. And he says, okay, hey, let's huddle up here. He says, I'm going to tell you then about what, what this is about. All right? These are the words that he has for anyone who wishes to follow him. It's for those who this morning are following Jesus. It's for those who are thinking, what is this Jesus about? And what does it mean to follow him? This is what he says. He says, Take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. The door to discipleship is cruciform. It is cross-shaped. But the path, though, beyond that door as it opens leads, though, to life and glory because it also follows along the resurrected Jesus. And so following Jesus is, isn't in a way that's different than when he first walked. That's discipleship. We are following him in the same way. And it's a way of life that is costly, but it's a way of life that also knows him. And it knows that he is better than anything else, than any other, any other way of life, any other vision of flourishing. Because at the center of it all is who? It's Jesus himself. And it follows after him. So what does discipleship involve? We're going to look at four things this morning from the text. First, discipleship means dying. Discipleship means dying. In verse 34, you know, that, again, what Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything because he calls you into a life of self-denial. Not denying ourselves just of certain pleasures like you would give up chocolate or coffee for a time. Uh, it's not just living a, some sort of mendicant lifestyle. It's not following some ascetic principle. It is self-denial, as in denying our very selves. Costing our very lives. And that may mean losing our lives. And that's been the case for, for many disciples throughout history. It's the current case for many disciples of Jesus right now throughout the world. 
uh, who are, it is literally costing them their physical lives to follow after Jesus and to be a disciple. They are counting the cost. But we are not likely to encounter that, are we? But still, self-denial, self-denial until death is still part of what it means to be a disciple. Because it's more than just losing our lives. It's also setting aside the life that we would normally gravitate towards. It means having our own dreams and having our own desires and what we think, usually selfishly, having those killed. It means our dreams of glory and vision of life in the way that we might ordinarily want it being put to death. But because there's a better way, though, than life as we know it now. Because it's for the sake of another way, a better way, a more beautiful way than Jesus. Self-denial and death in discipleship is more than just the everyday suffering that all people experience because we are all ruined people who live under the the, the curse of the fall. But rather, this sort of self-denial, this sort of death here, this sort of part or this everyday suffering here is done with a purpose. It is taking up willingly the mantle of death. And it's done not just inwardly, it's not just a disposition we have, but it actually sometimes is done in a public manner too. Being put to death. Right? That's what it means to take up one's cross. We, sometimes we, we think about the cross as just simply being a, a, a Christian symbol, and we lose what it really would have meant to these people here. Because when they would have thought of the cross, they would have thought of a gory symbol of execution. Where someone, where a condemned criminal would take up their cross and they would walk, have to drag it loaded down on their back to go outside of the, the city or to wherever down the road where they were going to be crucified. Uh, have, literally bearing the, the means, the method of execution upon them. And then to be nailed to it, hanging there, sometimes for days, trying to gasp for, for, for breath, because that's actually how you would die. You would die of asphyxiation, but you had to pull yourself up from there. That's so beautiful. Take up the cross and follow me. Now, the imagery that, we're, that Jesus gives here uh, to his disciples is this imagery of a sort of death march, of condemned people who are walking out of the city carrying those heavy crosses that they were about to be crucified upon. Now imagine that you're downtown and you're having a, drinking a cup of coffee, you're having a bite to eat, you know, you're sitting, chatting, having a really, having a great conversation with a friend, beautiful day. And then you look down and there's a parade that seems to be coming down the street. Oh, everyone loves a parade. Until you see this parade is really actually a bunch of people walking down in a line, uh, carrying together or loaded on their backs in electric chairs. They're holding uh, uh, syringes for lethal injection. They're all marching down the street with each other one by one in a row, carrying the instruments of the death that they're about to face. Uh, they're facing the jeers, the, the mocking words, the laughter, the, 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 just the, the strangeness and the confusing comments that are, be, that are being, being thrown out by the onlookers. It's shocking. It would be a strange thing. But even more shocking would be if every once in a while someone would leave behind their latte unfinished and get up and help heft an electric chair on their own shoulders and carry it out, subjecting themselves to the public spectacle. 
See, that's what Jesus calls us into when he says, follow me, take up your cross and follow me. In one sense, there is a public spectacle. We would have, what is going on here? What are these people doing this strange thing? But you know what? That's what it means. That's a, when, when one part of what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple. It is in one sense to be a public spectacle for him. To join in the procession of death, to follow after the crucified Christ, to follow after him in the life that he lived. Because a disciple can't expect to live any different than the master would, right? A following involves taking up their way of life, taking up their mantle, because that's where the, where the goodness is. It's in the flourishing, the flourishing the, the, which comes through, through that life. Because the same path of Jesus, though, is also the same path as his disciples. And it's more than just the dying part, but it's also the life. It's following him in the cross, but it's also following him then in the resurrection as well. Because this isn't some sort of, of, of ascetic self-denial. It's not some sort of self-discipline. But taking up the cross and being crucified with Christ in order to be raised with Christ as well. Uh, Martin Luther wrote about what was what's known as the, the two ways, the two theologies. You have the, a theology of glory or the theology of Christ. And the theology of glory is just simply looking at the glory and expecting the life of following Jesus, the, the Christian life, to be one that is triumphant, where the glory of, the, of Christ just simply fills everything that we do and we can expect grand things happening right now. But the theology of the cross, though, he said, is the one that actually follows the crucified and risen Jesus. It doesn't just focus on the risen Jesus and expecting everything to be falling in line with that. But you know what? We follow a crucified and suffering Jesus that it in which we can expect life to be now, but yet is also the hope of glory because we also follow a risen Jesus. And the theology of the cross gives you Jesus then as he came us as he redeemed the world it's the crucified and risen jesus both of them he redeems and so being a disciple following jesus means subjecting oneself willingly to self-denial to suffering and a cross-shaped way of living all for the sake of knowing jesus so that's the first thing about discipleship it takes it um, but second is discipleship takes silence it takes silence because there, if there are two paths to follow, that means there are two sides. Jesus and the other way, the way of the world. You can't follow both. It's not, not if following Jesus means death. You can't only follow him partly dead. You have to fully follow him fully dead. And verse 35 then, uh, this, those words here, forever who would, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's the idea of standing before a tribunal or, or, or a courtroom session here, being on trial. And your life hangs in the balance. You can either save your life or face death. You can either recant or plead not guilty and live. You can by dissociating yourself. Or you can stand and plead guilty and die. Claiming association. Jesus says, though, it's actually quite the opposite, that if you recant, then you will actually not save your life. But if you stand, then you will actually save your life. You will actually live. Because the outcome takes a much longer view of life, one of eternity. Right? People who are created body and soul 
have life that transcends just the body, right? And Jesus came to save the whole person. He came to save the soul and the body. And so following Jesus may involve death. It may involve self-denial. But it also follows a crucified and risen Jesus, a Jesus who lives even right now, who saves the body and the soul in resurrection. So being a disciple requires faith. It requires trusting in Jesus' promises despite what we see right now, and that those promises really are good and they are better when he calls us to follow him. Right? That, that it's, it's the call to, to trust in that he is who he says he is. And that he really does give glory. That he really is, even right now, at this moment, resurrected into glory. And so the question is, who will I believe? Will I, I, will I believe my own ideas of self-preservation? Now, this is costly, after all. It involves dying. Or it could be with Peter. And he says in John 6, well, where else can I go? You, Jesus, have the words of life. So it requires actually us taking a deeper look at life, of pulling off the outside veneers to see things as they really are. And we're going to see that Jesus is the Son of Man, not just the Jesus, the Christ, but the Son of Man. Because in verses 31 and 38, he says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man would suffer, or that when the Son of Man coming again uh, um, with the, the glory of his Father and the holy angels, Jesus here is referring back to Daniel 7. And this figure, this holy figure coming from heaven, given authority by God and given a kingdom that's over the world, a kingdom that is everlasting, this one who will reign over all things. It's this, this royal divine figure. Jesus is making the claim, you can believe. But then the other side, though, well, it's either Jesus or the world. Well, it's either the son of man or what Jesus then says, the adulteress. And sinful generation. Who wants to be known by that? Especially in Re Revelation 17. Uh, it describes actually the same sort of ideal here. Uh, the great prostitute. Right? Is that really true? Is this the way of life? Is, is this way of life opposite of Jesus really that bad? This sort of language? Yeah. Now have you ever been ashamed to be seen in public with someone? There's uh, the association of being with someone brings some sort of public shame. And, it and that association that you have by being seen with them reflects upon you. And Jesus says in verse 38 that following one will inevitably lead to a sense of being condemned by the other. Whose approval would you rather have? Whose approval would you rather be associated with here in these dark times? These are really sobering words of Jesus, and they're intended to be so, because it highlights the deep importance of following him despite what the life entails. And sometimes we need these sort of sobering words to shock us back into reality and to get us to consider things as they really are. And we have to think that, well, which glory would you rather be given? Would you rather be given the glory and life from, from adulterous people, from a sinful generation? We're given glory and life from the Son of Man, given authority from God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the third point then here about discipleship is discipleship is costly. There's no other way to put it. Discipleship is costly. All of this here, if you're beginning to be, to, if we're beginning to be a, a little bit uh, uncomfortable, it's because it's costly. Because we start to realize what this is. 
Jesus' words are basically telling us it will cost you everything. Self-denial is costly. Losing one's life, the death of our dreams and desires, a willingness to even die, that's costly, isn't it? Because it means denying the poles and the desires that we might ordinarily have within our hearts and we might want to follow after. And giving those up is hard. That's a really hard thing to do. But it trusts in something better, even despite what we, what we do see or what we can't see. And there are numerous examples throughout church history of people who have publicly given themselves over to death. Right? There are, there are, those people, though, in the history books are relatively few, though, compared to the countless individuals who gave themselves to following Christ along the path of the cross. People who did so, and people who are doing so, unknown to, ev- to anyone except for Jesus. See, even in the face of what the world would, would tell them to, to live a flourishing life, they remain faithful to the call that Jesus has put upon them. What's this look like? Let me read a few examples. It looks like the husband and father who is really talented, really good at his job, and he's turned down multiple job offers, uh, multiple promotions, multiple uh, things that would increase exponentially his financial incentives because he knows that doing so would mean to, be, to not have enough time with his family. And it would actually pull him away from those duties and the God-given beautiful duties of actually training and, and raising his own family and his own kids up in what it means to follow Jesus. It might look like the woman who has experienced same-sex attraction for a very long time, for her entire life, and has felt for years and years the pulls of those sexual longings and then has been bombarded with the temptations to just give in to them, but has said, no, I'm going to try to live faithfully and celibately and to give that up. Because that's what it means to be faithful to God. And there, those are just a couple examples. There are countless individuals, even, even uh, countless individuals who have taken up their crosses, who have seen how costly it is to follow Jesus, while others, though, who would say, Uh, That you are denying yourself, though, of what a fulfilled life actually looks like. You're giving up everything. You're giving up your own fulfillment. Why are you doing this? And sometimes those people might even be thinking, why am I doing this? This is hard. I'm at my breaking point. But those are the, the people, though, who Jesus would look upon as an outcast. There's no sense of shame when Jesus looks upon them, no sense of shame as the world might look upon them with a sense of shame. Who are you? What are you doing? You're giving up everything. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, but Jesus says no. Because when I come again someday with the, with the glory of God the Father and with the angels, there is going to be no shame. There is going to be love and delight as I wrap you up in my arms and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been a disciple to the end. You've given up everything for my sake. There's going to be no shame in that day. There's going to be love in that day. Because fourth from here, discipleship entrusts oneself to God. He calls us to follow, but nowhere where he hasn't made it clear. He knows what it's like to lose everything, right? He knows more than we do. 
He knows actually more than we ever will. He, the Son of God, stepped down from glory. He stepped down from his eternal glory on his heavenly throne to come and take on humanity uh, to live and suffer misery, real human misery that we live here in this fallen world. He denied himself the moment he bound himself to a human nature at the moment of conception in Mary's womb. The Son of God denied himself as he became ill, as he was hurt, as he had people insult him. Jesus Christ here lived the rejected life all the way up until the cross. And on that cross where he suffered wrath for our sin. And he knows all of this. He knows self-denial. He knows it all. And he doesn't call you to anything more or anything further than what he gave you. And as he calls you, as he calls you to follow him, he also goes with you also. He goes with you because he sends his spirit to go with you. He sends his spirit to go within you as your feet walk the same path that he walked. The same spirit who makes us more like him. The same spirit who strengthens our tired hands, our our aching backs, our weary feet. And who calms and gives strength to our weakened and fearful hearts. Now think about this here. It was Peter who spoke up and made that confession and gave it twice. Peter, throughout the, the Gospels, a man who's known for talking big but then failing to deliver so many times. A man who maybe a lot of us can relate to, I know I can, of wanting to follow Jesus all the way until death, and then when the critical moment happens and turns into a coward. And at one point there, even telling Jesus, I will never abandon you, I will never give up on you, and then a few hours later, he denies Jesus three times in the moment when he needed him the sort of Peter that, that that's, that's Peter here who says you're the Christ. But if you keep reading, we read of a different Peter later. We read of the Peter in the book of Acts. The Peter who, who spoke boldly and preached to thousands of people. Uh, even even, even the peop, some of the people who probably put Jesus, uh, sent Jesus to the cross in the first place. And he was preaching boldly to them about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God who came and to repent and believe in him. And thousands came to faith. The same Jesus who was, or sorry, the same Peter who would not recant from from following or teaching or preaching Jesus and was beaten by by the the governing authorities and counted it joy, went away from there rejoicing. It's the same Peter who wrote uh, 1 Peter 4 that we read this morning. Consider it all joy when the fiery trials come upon you. That's the same Peter. What's different? What changed in him? the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ within him. The Spirit whom Jesus Christ gave to him just as he gave to the church. And he was transformed by the Spirit who was at work in him and who shaped him closer, more and more into the image of Christ as he himself was following after the Christ, the suffering Christ. And he followed him knowing the glory that was in store for him. And friends, that's the same Spirit that's given to us to the church, to you today. If we're feeling weak, if we're feeling tired, if we are feeling weary and anxious and perhaps even scared because of what it means to follow after Jesus and be a disciple, Jesus has the answer. Jesus has compassion. It's part of why Jesus has given you his spirit 
to help you along in that way, to help you be a more and more faithful disciple. See, discipleship is about commitment. Yes, surely here we're talking about our commitment to follow Jesus, but it's more than that. It's about his commitment to us, his commitment to strengthening us to overcome our weaknesses as we follow, his constant intercession and prayer for us even right now at the right hand of God the Father. He is praying for you as a disciple, as you are taking up your cross, and he knows what it means to take up the cross. His commitment to us by his spirit to strengthen and to form us and to carry us along to make us more faithful and also reminding us here of the glory that he has already entered in. The promise of life abundant and eternal, of life imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. Lord God, we cannot take the words lightly here that, that Jesus has spoken about, what it means to follow him and be a disciple. We cannot just set those aside. We can't, we can't loosen, or, uh, loosen them from their sheaths. They are serious words and sobering words. And so with that, Lord, we come before you and ask that you would make us more faithful disciples that we would follow after you, empowered by your spirit, even in the times when we are nervous or anxious or afraid. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us as we follow and to see the goodness of the life that you've called us into. The goodness of following Jesus, because there's, yes, there is suffering in this life, but there is incredible glory and resurrection and eternal as Jesus will come someday and look at us all with a faith that is beaming and knows no more. Prepare us as we come before uh, the table of the Lord very shortly. In Jesus' name.